When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Text Message with me, Nate Langson. And I'm Ian Morris. And later on, we're going to explain something that's going to happen to your house. Yes, you in Britain, your house, that I don't think... As a country, we've necessarily given quite as much attention to uh, as, as we should. But first, some major breaking news about your favourite messaging services. Um, the European Commission is going to publish a draft law on data privacy that it says aims to ensure instant message and internet calling services like Skype and so forth are, are facing similar security and privacy rules to those that govern things like text messages and mobile calls and landlines and stuff like that. This, according to a, a bunch of reports I've read, one on The Guardian, one on the FT. Uh, this policy paper is going to be due in September and essentially outlines how over-the-top services, that's your WhatsApps and Facebook Messenger and, and so forth, services would have to comply with requests from security services as well as being regulated on how they actually make money from the consumer data that they aggregate. And this is essentially going to fix, or at least aims to fix, this sort of grey area where telecom company-like services are not actually regulated like telecoms companies or networks are. And essentially, Europe wants to fix this and bring all of these services together under the same rules. Um, You know, that would mean, for example, that you'd have to offer emergency calling via, you know, the likes of WhatsApp or Skype, potentially. And telecoms groups are basically annoyed at the moment because it it can look unfair that they've sort of built out this network of uh, technologies and access and everything, and they're subject to scrutiny and having to store certain amounts of data or provide data on request and so on and so forth. And these companies have been set up on top of their networks, provide the same service, potentially take their business away, and don't actually have to follow the same rules that the companies on the backs of which they built their business on are having to um, you know, having to follow. So early proposals apparently are a long way from being final text, uh, which wouldn't be expected until probably the end of the year or, or possibly next year. And obviously any law that goes through like this has to go through the usual legislative procedures that all EU uh, draft laws have to go through and be approved by the current 28 uh, member states of the EU. Our voice obviously will be worth Jack S in this debate <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but this is really significant because obviously OTT services, over the top services, have been rising for a long time. We've talked in recent weeks about how text messaging, you know, still managed still manages to sort of attract huge amounts of users, but it's still subject to uh, cannibalization by the likes of WhatsApp and, and Facebook Messenger and, and, and so on. And I, 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 what I find really interesting as well is just the, the difference of, of descriptions between what is an over-the-top service and what is a telecom service. Um, but before we get into that, Ian, what's your sort of first takeaway on, on, on this proposal? Well, I can sort of understand why there might be a need for it. I mean, I, what we're doing with the messaging services, I mean, just if we just take that as an example, is we are 
sort of trusting that they will act in a way that's appropriate. Um, and of course, it's bad business to not look after your customers' data. So I think for the most part, they're pretty good. But um, I, I can, uh, knowing you know enough about telecoms regulation, I can I, I can tell you that the the telecoms operators would much rather there was less regulation because it would enable them to get on with um, doing what they wanted to do. Uh, but so from their perspective, obviously, they're hamstrung by rules that other companies are not. Um, although maybe this is the wrong way around. Maybe there should be a, more of a deregulation of that industry. Um, but uh, ultimately, I suppose this is inevitable, isn't it? In any industry that's new, um, sooner or later, someone's going to come along and go, oh, they have quite a lot of user information. We should definitely do something about that, shouldn't we? Um, so I guess... Here we are. Yeah, it just—it's almost staggering how long it takes. I mean, when did WhatsApp come out, for example? Well, WhatsApp's been around for—I mean, five years, long, longer than that. Yeah, than so that. you know, like it's—it's it's amazing how slow this machine moves. Yeah, and we're not there yet, and we won't be there for years, will we? No, I mean, I think what's interesting here—I mean, well, there are two couple of things that we haven't talked about that I think are interesting. One is that I think if you look at this through the perspective of a set of eyes not located within the eu you could see this as okay we and let's 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 say we as america in this example we have created whatsapp we have created facebook messenger we have created or out of asia we have created line we've created wechat or in india we've created hike uh, which is very popular there it just became a, a startup unicorn you know valued at over a billion dollars uh, Europe, you have created nothing. You can technically claim <laughs> Skype, but you sold that to eBay and then they flugged it to Microsoft. So that's kind of exempt at this point. But you created nothing. And so you're simultaneously also seeing usage of the networks that you have built uh, being declined, rather their traditional businesses being taken away by these services. So instead of innovating and trying to create new services like WhatsApp that challenge them, you impose strict regulation that hinders their ability to do their job and protects the old guard, if you like. And I can sort of see that argument from a, from from that perspective, because that is kind of what's happening. Otherwise, we would have de- more deregulation, as you say, but that that's just not possible in this in this current climate of, you know, privacy concerns and, and terror suspects being uh you know captured or, or or monitored over these networks yeah i mean i think I, I i'd be interested to know how this came about i mean is this something that the european commission wanted to do for the sake of its uh citizens or is it something that's been balloted for by um existing operators who who feel like they're being shortchanged well telecoms operators um, have definitely wanted something like this for some time because text messaging as a single business model has been incredibly lucrative you know it is it, it the, the markup on sending those those things is it, it's some it's of the outstanding, most isn't it? staggering you know if, if a text message was charged by the megabytes then text messages would would you know a, a megabyte of text messaging data would would cost something like ten thousand quid like it, it's literally that level of markup yeah, and and losing I mean, that is 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 significant, particularly if you don't have a hand in creating whatever it is that's that's taking over from text messaging. But here's the problem, right? That, that any regulation that comes along is not going to improve that, is it? It's just gonna it's just gonna mean that there's going to be more red tape for the newer companies. It's not going to make the existing companies any more wealthy. No, but that's that's that's, that's why I can see the argument from the perspective oh, yeah. of a innovator or, or someone in the US or in Asia saying. 
this is just because you haven't created any of these and you want to protect the the old guard so what about if you know whatsapp goes okay well we won't do europe anymore i mean that is extremely unlikely given that you know it's a huge part of the business um but you know like i could i could see them sort of forcing the european union's hand on it by saying i'll actually then it's it's if you're going to make it impossible i mean these most of these services don't make money, do they? I mean, the, you know, Telegram, WhatsApp, it dep- they're, it, all, it, it, they're all run at basically zero cost to the user. Now, to understand what an OTT service is, you have to understand what is currently classed as a, as a telecom service or officially an electronic communication service, an ECS, yeah. which is basically anyone who provides electronics communications, networks or services public and private networks, mobile or fixed, voice, telephony, data, and internet. Basically, a mobile network, an ISP. That's what those are. That's not what the WhatsApps are. So it made me think, well, what's going to be subject to this? Because if Skype-to-Skype calls look like some sort of weird exception, then you think, okay, well, this is more about when when something is tied to a phone number, like WhatsApp or Line. You know, they're both tied to phone numbers. The new app from Google, Duo, is tied to a phone number, not a Google account. So it looks more likely that those are the ones that may be subject to some of these. But it made me think, well, what about things like WhatsApp to WhatsApp calling then? That's probably the kind of thing that would be subject to these calls. But what about FaceTime, which is not, I mean, can be tied to a number, but can also just be tied to an email address. Then there's things like Internet of Things devices that may enable communication in future, like Amazon's Echo or, or even games consoles, you know, that have voice chat or Steam or things like that. And I thought, like, where does it end? Like, at what point do you have to regulate all of those because it's going to look like there's one rule if you're big enough and another one if you do exactly the same thing because that would then sort of to me it would make you it would be it wouldn't be an incentive to grow your business because if you if you cross that threshold it's like buying a house if you buy a house in the uk over about two hundred fifty thousand pounds you're subject to ridiculous stamp duty so it's actually in your interest to to buy, you know, to offer a house slightly under that because it, yeah. it, it gets you uh, interest from people who don't want to pay stamp duty and therefore pay more for the house. So it, it sort of, it would encourage, to me, it seems, it would encourage apps to want to stay smaller. But apparently the OTT definition, according to a European Commission spokesperson, Uh, would extend to services that, and this is a quote, to be functional substitute for services provided by a traditional telecoms Uh, operator. that's everything then, basically. Well, no, because I don't think so. I think they would say, well, could you... Text messaging is, and that's what WhatsApp does, right? But that's exactly it. So that's why WhatsApp would be subject to this because you could reasonably say well you can use whatsapp for your calls and your texts and therefore not need a phone line but no one's going to say well i'm not going to have a phone line because i have steam and steam enables voice chat and messaging it has to be something where the primary use of of this is to replace a phone line or a subscription where does skype fall in that i guess because skype is voice to voice it would fall under those that regulation but it doesn't but, right now. That's the thing. Like Skype yeah. is actually 
it, it seems, from what I've, I've tried to read and understand some of this law, but Skype is sort of weirdly exempt, possibly because it's just been around for so long, that it's been around so much longer than any of these services that there's already an exemption for Skype for in, in some legal text. That's crazy that, that they would name a, a company as an accepted... That that's, makes no sense to me. And what about this? So to give you an example, my I don't have a phone line in this house. Um, it's um, I have internet which is provided by virgin and i have a voip number so um, all of my voice calls are carried only over the internet uh, which means obviously if the internet goes down i can't make a landline call uh, but i don't use a landline um, you know there are two people in my life who use a landline and one is my father-in-law and one of is my parents um, but that's a good example so- of something that, that, that the european commission could say well that service needs to be able to make emergency calls. Ah, well, in fact, I can on my VoIP. Um, and ah. I be- but you can't on Skype, can you? They no. actually say it's impossible. That's right. Yeah, but my VoIP, if you give them your home address, um, then you are, I think, and then they do some sort of test, I think, um, then, you're in, then it enables emergency calls. Although, obviously, with the usual caution that in an emergency, you can't necessarily rely on the internet. Uh, but, of course, everyone's got a mobile phone, and that's reliable enough for the, for the most part. Like, if, in fact, arguably, a, a mobile phone is probably more reliable than a landline, say, if you have a fire uh, where equipment could be damaged by, quite quickly uh, or, you know, the line coming in could be severed for some reason. So, you know, that, I don't feel unsafe as a result of that. So you, but, can, you can see the logic as well here like you can see can. the logic that, that 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 is a that is a public benefit to something like this if if feasibly possible yeah i mean i and i definitely think that um it it's fair to ask when people become reliant on apps you see the thing is that for us because we're technically aware we um, we would make a judgment call. So I would say, well, even if I could make a, an emergency call on WhatsApp, I probably wouldn't because it's probably better and easier to just to use my normal landline or my uh, mobile um, as a phone. But a lot of people aren't, wouldn't be aware that there was even really a difference. I mean, like, you know, if you receive a WhatsApp call, it's not that dissimilar to receiving a normal phone call. So uh, the the vast majority of the public would probably just think, oh, well, it's okay to use that. And I guess that's where the legislation becomes important because people will discover, like, I mean... You, you probably remember this, but in the early days of mobile phones, and in fact, it may even still be like this. I haven't made an emergency call for many years, but when I was at university, I did. And um, you have to go through a mobile operator to get to the emergency services. Um, it isn't the same as calling on a landline where you just get put through to the emergency operator and you tell them who you want to speak to. You have to do that through an intermediary uh, on mobile. Now, again, I, I don't know if it's still like that because I haven't done it. Uh, but that was, you know, that was because they sort of basically bolted the emergency services over the top of the existing service. It was very weird. Like, why can't you call 999 from a phone or whatever? Well, I think one so of the problems guess- is that when you dial 999, you're actually being routed to, to the local 999. Yes, you know, and, and I guess and that must have something to do with it. But I mean, it's not in America, I believe they do that. Um, it, it, the the mobile operators are required to assist them with location services. In fact, the Americans uh, mandated that there was a uh, chip put in all phones before GPS was really a big deal. Um, and th- th- I believe that helps with that so that they, they can locate phones to at least some degree of accuracy. So, um, so I mean, again, you can sort of see then where the, where, the, where the bit of logic lies within this, that if yeah, we are absolutely. moving towards apps and services replacing telecoms lines, 
provisions need to be in place for things like well, emergency calling? Would it not be better? And I mean, yes, I mean, and I completely agree with what you're saying. But the idea, perhaps, that maybe there's a there's a an, it would be better to decentralise certain things so that um, you know that everyone pays into the pot to have access to them, but that you provide an emergency operator who deals with all that, but it's it's funded as a result of all of the companies putting into it rather than forcing telecoms existing telecoms operators to provide that service at expense to themselves you know you take it away from that so that that cheers them up slightly and then you know you can use it on any service but i you know i mean i'm not i'm not in the european union i don't know what i you know how what (laughs) motivates those people it's it uh, logic often doesn't play a part in these things as far as i can see so but i agree with you i think it's there ha- it's it's well i'm not fully in agreement with with this at all no. because i i think that it creates a massive double standard and i think that it 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 does look like protectionism of of the old guard which is not necessarily on the face of it a terrible thing because we do need those networks in order for the the new ones to survive but but the, the, but the, the goal is money. for this to I mean, land in the middle somewhere sorry for them like it's no, i don't feel sorry like, for any of them no but it's not like you know m- mobile operators generate revenue as a result of us using those services now I, I, for, I, I am aware that mobile operators have for a very long time resisted becoming dumb pipes they don't like the idea of that they don't like being just an internet connection but ultimately that is the way it's going like it, it you know your internet provider is essentially a dumb pipe aren't, aren't they really you don't get there's no aol services anymore there's no CompuServe. um the walled garden approach it doesn't work people want to be networking with the whole world not the people who are on aol well we've probably uh, spent know. a reasonable amount of time yes. uh, dis- discussing all this um i mean this obviously is firstly subject to actually being published as a draft then it has to go through the legislative uh uh roller coaster that is eu debates with member states that's going to take ages and things like this have been created and then fallen down in the past one really notable example i think was the 2006 data retention directive um with have basically forced telecoms firm to store citizen communications data for two years now that took eight years and a lot of complaints uh, but ultimately the european court of justice killed it and said it violated basic rights uh, basically respect for private life and protection of personal data you know that's something that came up and was in place and then everyone said yeah this is actually completely ridiculous and then shut it down and that's actually why we now have the data retention and investigatory powers act um of whenever that came out 2014 i think um so these things do have a, a tendency to even if they come into law eventually go away and something else much much worse comes in its place so look forward to that everyone uh, but in the meantime let us know what you think to the proposition and whether you think that this is, is good for telecoms or or not podcast at natelangson.com now ian have you heard of something called the smart meter it system well, I haven't heard of that particular bit, but I'm aware of what a smart meter is. Well, this is something that I really hadn't paid as much attention to as I think I could have or should have. But essentially, the government here in the UK wants every home and business to be offered a smart meter for their gas and electric usage by the end of 2020. And these are meters that will automatically send energy usage readings to energy suppliers, which would theoretically give you more accurate and more regular readings because these things are going to ping you every 15 minutes um, or 30 minutes, actually. There's some controversy there. Um, 
that would that would give you more real-time knowledge over your power and gas consumption. And the daft thing is, this has been delayed many, many times. It was actually due to go live on Wednesday last week. It's now looking like it's going to be September or October. It's been in the works for years. And they want to fit 53 million of these meters to about 30 million premises over the next four years. There's um, a new governmental body that was set up to do all this called the Data and Communications Company. Lovely, lovely name. <laughs> uh, it was set up and, and that's to, to sort of create and handle the infrastructure that handles all this information. It operates under the watchful eye of Ofgem, the energy regulator here. These systems, essentially, there's a a meter that, that tacks onto your gas and electric meter. That then wirelessly communicates to a communications hub that sits probably within the same little bit of space that your meters are sitting. That then sends data two ways. It sends one to like a little dashboard that would probably sit in your kitchen or, or somewhere in a cupboard to show you in real time how much energy your house is using. But also it connects to mobile networks in the UK. That's on the Telefonica network, which runs O2. Uh, in order to communicate with the energy suppliers, you know, in real time. Uh, If you don't have a good enough signal to the mobile networks, it uses a mesh network where it'll send data potentially, from what I've understood so far, through a number of these devices until one of them can send all the data through to the network. And they want to do this for every building, like basically every premises, millions of them, tens of millions of them. And I've read a number of uh, estimates of how much this is costing, but one common number that I've landed on is about eleven billion pounds a year to just to roll this stuff out. Uh, it'll cost the average households, or rather, the cost of the government for the average household is anywhere between about two hundred and two hundred and fifteen pounds, and the supposed saving to a domestic residence is about 25 quid a year, which would mean it would need to be almost a decade of use just to break even on the savings on the savings you make on behalf of the government's investment in these meters. Now, this to me completely slipped me by that, 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 that this was a thing. And not only that it was a thing, but that it was a giant, enormous, massively delayed, incredibly expensive thing that I can only see getting more expensive, even though it also sounds kind of brilliant and inevitable. I've got to say, right, I, so I didn't realise that this was um, something that the government was so... I know they wanted smart meters, but I didn't realise that they were sort of as invested in it as they are. Um, and that surprises me. What's the what's the end goal here? What are they trying to do? Well, because- there are several goals. One for the user, obviously, is save money. Although I find that a bit strange since you can switch providers and basically save more money than these things will ever save you in a year. Uh, but the other thing is to cut down on energy usage because the the more the more accurate data energy companies are being given about your usage, the less or rather the more accurate amount of energy they have to buy from the people who produce the energy, therefore lower emissions, less waste, cleaner air, less overall uh, expenditure by by the country. Now, here's something that I learned the other day uh, that I did not realise, and this is fascinating. There's a video uh, by Tom Scott, um, who is quite a well-known YouTuber, um, and he talks about how, how you know generating power. Um, and what I didn't realise was that all of the power in the UK is sort of generated um, as a sort of as a single unit, if you will. So the power stations across the country all work together um, because they have to be able to sort of produce the right amount of electricity to meet the need. You can't have too much electricity; it just doesn't work. Um, 
so this whole the whole power generation system in the UK and in any other country is a lot more complicated perhaps than people think. Um, like I, I had no idea uh, about that, and so I can see maybe perhaps smart meters could be used as a way to help them more accurately, you know, manage things like that. Um, for example, if if say we were all able to have something like the te- the Tesla Powerwall. Excuse me, I seem to not be able to speak today. The Tesla Powerwall thing, uh, which stores electricity, um, you could use a smart meter to manage that, so that the the grid could ask for power back. So say, you know, we're you we're we're merrily using the normal amount of electricity, and then something happens, like there's a big news event, and everyone turns on their TV. Then usually they'd have to spin up a power station, you know, to get more power. Um, but what they could do instead is they could take power from people's electric cars the power wall and bring it back into the grid and you would get paid for that because you've obviously already paid once to take it out. So that's an interesting potential that this might bring. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that the government thinks it's worth investing all this money in. I believe the scenario you just painted is actually in use for solar. Yes. And if you are if you are uh, gathering more solar energy than you are using, you can actually effectively sell it back into the national grid. Yes, and that's absolutely right. Or any any power you're able to generate, if you have a turbine, a wind turbine in your garden or something, um, as long as it's connected in the right way, uh, yes, you can sell power back. It's quite good. They cut the they cut the tariff on it, which is a shame because you could actually make a healthy profit if you put solar panels on your roof. Uh, it would take years, uh, and that's perhaps what's going on here. You know, they they see that they understand that a big investment is painful but the benefits you get from it at the other end are well worth it. Well, possibly for the country as a whole, I actually looked into some projected forecasts and they actually reckon by 2030, households will save the equivalent of £45 a year, which still to me doesn't seem like a great amount for an £11 billion investment over the span of 14 years. But as you say, it's it's the it's the overall effect probably on the uh, this sort of not mainstream electricity, but the wholesale purchase of electricity and gas that this is going to affect most prominently. And just to throw myself massively into the deep end here, guess who's ordered a smart meter to test all this stuff out? Is it? Nate Langson. That's right. It's it's me. It's the person that I am who is going to do that. So I switched energy suppliers and I went uh, and I ordered a smart meter to be installed next week. So oh, I'm I'm going to go head first and test this stuff out and and see what it's and see what it's like. The great thing is, do you know how much it cost me to have all this installed? Is it nothing? That's right. It's nothing. It's no pounds and no pences either. So I thought, well, what's the harm? But let us know. Have you got one already? And how are you finding it? That is what I'm really keen to hear about. Or if you're listening in a country. Uh, that, that is not the UK, where you already have things like this. The, a lot of these are widespread across Europe, and they ping readings back every 15 minutes. So if you've got one of these already, let us know. Podcast at natelangson.com. Well, we've gone deep on a couple of topics so far, but let's check in briefly with our friend overseas, Tom Merritt, What's been going on in the global tech scene, Tom? Thanks, Nate. Peter Wells this week told us how hackers have made the census in Australia a little less fun. We describe how you can get a gold leaf tattoo that can act as a touchscreen on your arm, explain why old tech may not be the cause of your flight delays. I get almost convinced that USB-C may not be such a bad replacement for headphone jacks. Uber announces self-driving cars coming to Pittsburgh customers next month and how a man-in-the-middle attack works. All those wonders and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. 
Right, Ian, one other thing I wanted to get to, and then we've got a couple of emails I wanted to touch on as well. Now, normally... I try and keep the church and state division between the podcast and my professional work at Bloomberg, uh, uh-huh. you know, nice and separate. But I did want to touch on one story that that we did publish um, this week about uh, Apple essentially hitting a roadblock on making some major changes to the Apple Watch that would basically have allowed it to connect to cellular networks, basically have 3G or 4G or what have you, but baked directly into the phone into the watch which would make it less dependent on the iphone this again according to people familiar with the matter and apparently the company apple that is was going to announce new watch models this autumn that had all these new improvements and and also improvements to health tracking and stuff um but they hit a snag that it just wasn't feasible to to bake this stuff in for a variety of reasons so there are going to be new versions and they're going to integrate gps and better health systems but it's not going to have the sort of uh iphoneless 3g capability that apple wanted and uh and i wanted to get your thoughts on this ian whether you think that this is a shame would you use an apple watch more if it had 3g in it um well when i use an iphone i do use an apple watch and i really like it like i don't i don't go to town on the smart features uh because i don't know they're all right but actually i really like it as a watch, I think it's a nice piece of hardware. Uh, there are some things that are really good, obviously controlling music, getting navigation, um, but the Apple Watch does need some work. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit sluggish with apps and stuff. Well, that's um, definitely going to change with Watch OS yes, three. Take my well, word exactly. for it. Exactly, and, the- and I, I believe they've done a really good job with that. Actually, um, like that's exactly what it needed to make it from a, a passable smartwatch to a really, really excellent one. Well, I, I can tell you from the perspective of someone who's used it, it makes a huge difference. What I uh, what I know is missing from the Apple Watch and what I know that Apple will be very mindful of is the fact that it can't track a workout when you leave the house if you, um, you know, because of the, G, the lack of GPS. I mean, I, th- I think there are ways of, you know, it knowing based on footsteps and stuff. But anyway, it, um, I, I think that would be a great change. If they want to be taken seriously in you know, health and fitness, then that's probably a smart move. Um, I've been quite resistant to a new watch because I think in order to make an electro, you know, a a smart watch attractive, you need to not have the the churn that we saw with the original run of Android Wear devices where each year there'd be a new one and it would be slightly better. Um, And I think that a watch is something you tend to buy once, maybe. And, um, you know, you have a watch and you keep it. And if it's a good watch, it should last forever. And that's the problem uh, with Apple, you know, posing this as a as much a fashion accessory as a, as a piece of technology. Because people often buy watches and wear them for years and years and years. And, absolutely. you know, if you were one of the people that spent the thousands on the, you know, the gold edition of the yeah. watch, you're now looking at a, a very nice looking but outdated piece of technology that is nowhere near as capable as the 400 pound new version so i think it'll be interesting to see if apple comes out with anything and says you know uh, you know if you bought an edition you can return it and they'll put the new components in it Uh, i mean as long as it doesn't change size then i i would see that being you know because the metal is extremely valuable you know the one i've got the one that's uh, stainless steel um and you know i mean it's it's probably not that expensive but it's it was it's an expensive watch to buy Mm. um so you know it makes it makes sense for them to offer something like that or at least just buy the watches back and then they can melt down the metal and you know reuse it but uh you know i i don't know I I see a lot of Apple Watches. Yeah, um, I don't see so many Android Wear devices. No, I I I, I agree. I, I see a lot more. I feel I see a lot more of them than than anything else. Um, I think the Apple Watch did exactly what most Android Wear watches didn't do, which is provide a really simple smartwatch 
that notifies you of things, um, but but basically puts the the clock front and centre, no matter what you do. Um, Android Wear, I've written about this before as a a matter of extreme frustration, but I will look at my Android Wear watch sometimes and half the screen will be taken up by some stupid notification. I'm like, that's not the way to run it. It needs to be a watch first and foremost, and then... Uh, you know, and then I give you the opportunity to see extra stuff. Although I love gestures on Android Wear, like being able to rock your wrists to see what notifications you've got is a, is brilliant. I'd love to see Apple do something like that. Almost certainly will happen at some point. I would almost certainly. So. But you know what? This all reminded me of, and I, I, it took me a while to find this. But I wrote an art, an article back in two thousand and seven, or or it might be two thousand and eight, about LG. Which, I mean, this was all, you know, the iPhone had only just come out in the UK. You know, this is all pre-smartwatch, pre-everything. We were calling them watch phones back then. LG released a £1,000 3G watch that had a SIM card built into it that you took out a separate contract on Orange, on the network Orange, and it had cameras in it. You could video call. You could make phone calls on it. It ran as a phone. That was in about 2008. I mean, it sold none. Um, I remember, in fact, you and I were both at CNET at the time when we yeah. were covering this. And I remember we went to the, one of the Orange launch stores to try and see how many people were showing up to buy the £1,000 watch. And uh, I remember there weren't very many people there. And they didn't release uh, a very quickly revised new version. So it was a bit of a flop, a bit of an expensive flop. But it did make me think, like, it was possible to do it back then. So whatever Apple's trying to do, it must be more than just baking 3G into it. Because that's been done a lot. And Android, Samsung with its gear has been doing that for some time. So it's not a new thing. There must be something else that makes it so difficult to do, almost certainly related to power and battery usage. I I would say it almost certainly is. I think that Apple's really struggled with power because um, again, Android where you get um, you you do have the option on always on screen, which I use. Um, It uses less power but Apple hasn't offered that. It's relied more on the fact that it's able to detect, well it's i think apple would say it's better at detecting when you're looking at it and that's sort of true uh, but even so you want to watch to be on all the time don't you really well, so we'll they've s- obviously been very mindful of the fact that power is an issue we'll see what comes out there's an, an event due in a couple of weeks time that we'll be watching closely and uh, it'll be interesting to see just what makes it into the next version if indeed we see it at all Well, thank you to everyone who has been keeping emails uh, coming in and reviews on the iTunes store. As ever, that is, it, it cannot be overstated how much difference it makes to us when you leave reviews and when you email in, because it's basically the thing that validates the reason we do the show. You know, we don't ask for money, we don't take advertising, we don't do anything like that. The only thing that matters is, are people listening and do they like what they're hearing? So when you leave us reviews or send email to us, like, that is basically payment. That's what keeps us going. So thank you to everyone who's been sending them in. We we now get, at the moment, we're getting a bit more we can even get to every week, but we do read them all, and as discussed last week, Ian and I generally discuss all of them. Uh, we had one that came in from Godfrey, who literally just wrote in to say, love the show, keep up the good work. Thank you very much indeed. Um, but then, the, the one I picked out, this came in from Naaman, 
And uh, I'm going to cut this one a little bit shorter just because it was quite a long email. He says, Hi, Nate. Sorry for flogging the dead horse, which is the TV license debacle. I'm hoping you can help provide a clear understanding to why the TV license is still mandatory uh, in having a TV or compatible device connected, not just to be a broadcasting network, but now the internet too. He's talking about the use of uh, iPlayer now falling under the license fee. Uh, And also as to why it is still considered relevant in an age of subscription services and freedom of choice. My position, Naaman says, is that I'm currently not a license fee payer. I refuse to be charged for the service I do not use. Considering I've already paid a considerable amount of money for a TV, with taxes and duties included, I've paid for a games console from which I stream my preferred content, which also includes taxes and duties. Finally, I pay several subscription services and digital downloads, all of which I pay taxes and duties on. Yet, as of September... I will need a TV license for the privilege of properly using the devices I have already paid large amounts for. He then gave a couple of hypotheticals about how this could or basically wouldn't work if you applied this model to other businesses like Sky, for example. Uh, He says, I appreciate some people do like the BBC and enjoy the content they produce, and I believe it should be paid for, but only by the people who want to use it and not forcing those who don't with fees and fines to comply. Um, And then he, he has a few more words and signs off. Now, Ian, I know you have some strong views on this, but the one thing that I would should say, because in the very beginning of this email, Naaman says, I'm hoping you can help provide a clear understanding to why the, the TV license is mandatory. So let me just explain this very, very, very clearly. Not everyone needs a TV license. If you don't watch the BBC, if you don't use the BBC website, if you don't listen to BBC radio, you do not need a license fee. It is simple as that. You do not have to pay. You only have to pay if you're in any way touching on any of the BBC services. Then it's one fee fits all, even if you're only using it just for radio. Well, the confusion is, though, that you are... you you If you use TV to watch broadcasts of any kind, then you do need a license fee. Um, and that's what, I think that's what gets a lot of people quite riled, because if you subscribe to Sky, say, I mean, obviously you get B- the BBCs on the Sky platform. Um, but say you d- back in the analog days, people would be like, well, can't I just detune the BBC and just watch ITV? Uh, and I'd be like, well, first of all, what the hell is wrong with you? Why on earth would you want to watch ITV? And secondly, um, no. Because it is because basically it's called a license fee, but it is actually a tax, um, and it's probably. I mean, I've always resisted calling it a tax because it seems like a nastier word. But it is probably more clear to say it's a tax. It's like, and a lot of things have taxes on them, and obviously people hate taxes. Um, yes, but you're right. I mean, if you, if these days, I think streaming is okay. They're never going to come after you for if you say if you, all you do is watch Netflix, but you do it on a TV. I think you're probably going to be fine. But I'm telling um, you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you 100%. You can tell the license fee body even if you own a TV that you never watch TV. Oh yeah. Then you don't have to pay. Like no, you, you don't. do not have to pay the license fee if you own a telly. If you if you tell them you never watch it. Yes. It is and- but that's right, and, and and you can still use Netflix on it, and you can still game on it. So you, you know that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but it, the the point of the BBC, and this is and this is why I believe that there is a place for a, a fee that applies to everyone, and that perhaps charging people each year is the wrong way to do it. Perhaps it should come out of tax. But to explain the reason it isn't 
out of general taxation is that it gives the BBC separation from the government. So the idea, and we have seen this, and the BBC has suffered in recent years as a result of its this charter renewal, which has sort of forced it to be a little bit more mealy-mouthed than I would like. You know, the BBC should be quite ferocious in its, you know, quest for the truth. And I don't think it's doing a very good job of that at the moment, but that's a separate issue. The idea of not using tax is that it keeps the BBC independent and able to say what it wants. Uh, it's not beholden to the government. Um, it, it, like anything, you know, like if you don't have children, you're still paying for schools. Uh, if you don't go to the library, you're still paying for libraries. If you never go in a park, uh, you're still paying for parks. It's it is a tax, and that's the thing to remember. Now, I personally happen to believe that the BBC provides amazing services, um, uh, offers great things, and I. I don't use a lot of live TV. I, I barely watch TV. I will sometimes watch BBC News. Um, most of my entertainment comes from, you know, Netflix, Amazon, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I listen to Radio 4 a lot and I use the BBC website. So I, I've always seen it as being worth 140 whatever quid it is a year. Um, I can see for some people that's a huge struggle. but uh, And it seems old-fashioned and a lot of people don't understand it, but I would say it's one of those things that's, I mean, I would equate it to being like, you know, the decision to leave the EU. Unless you're absolutely, completely aware of what the organisation does and why it's important, then the decision to leave it might be quite easy. Um, but ultimately, I think the country is better for it. And if you look around the world, you'll see that, not only the BBC, but also other British broadcasters like Sky and ITV and Channel 4 are all viewed as being the best in the world. And that's partly because of what the BBC brings to broadcasting in the UK. It, it has always been something that produces high quality entertainment that raises the bar for other broadcasters. Good point. Very good point. Um, well, I hope that helps you, Naaman, uh, you know, to answer your question. Uh, yes, you can have, you've got a TV... You don't watch or use any BBC services. Don't worry. You you don't need to pay for it. But as Ian points out, maybe you should anyway. But you probably won't. Um, <laughs> any more emails are very welcome. As always, podcast at natelangson.com. Thank you to everyone who's written in. We'll get some more next week. We'll possibly get some of the stories we had scheduled for this week that we didn't get time to come to. But you can let us know what you want to hear by letting us know and by leaving those reviews in iTunes podcast at natelangson.com and obviously text message in the iTunes store and on that note we shall see you in another week <laughs>